Hello, and welcome to The Lee Show. Uh, it's great to be back with special guest Jeff Schullenberger. Jeff, uh, you may recall we did a, a fantastic episode together about a year ago, and um, we're excited to be reunited here. Um, Jeff is, as you may recall, one of the world's leading scholars on René Girard, a French philosopher and, um, and, and a great thinker and a, uh, a scholar of what you might call the new right, because that's something we talked a lot about last last episode. Um, and and uh, great to have you here, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I would worry about being, you know, described as the world's leading scholar, but uh, I have, I, I'd say I've been more of a popularizer. I've sort of, uh, you know, tried to write about Rene Girard for audiences beyond academia and, uh, you know, have gotten some some pretty good uh, responses to that and I think have, uh, you know, helped uh, spread interest in his ideas. So that's that's probably what I would say is my claim to fame on that front. Um, could you give, but, like for, for our listeners, could you give a, a quick summary, like the, the sort of um, pop, popularized summary of like, who is René Girard and why is he such an important thinker? Sure. So René Girard is a, a French, uh, originally literary scholar, uh, sort of literary theorist, um, although his work later expands into the realms of religion and anthropology, and you might say philosophy more broadly. He, uh, so he, he's born in France, uh, leaves as a young man just after the Second World, you know, he spends uh, the Second World War as a student in occupied Paris, uh, it's a pretty grim time. Um, he, he manages to get an opportunity to go to the United States immediately after the war, spends the rest of his career in the United States, although he continues to write most of his work in, in French, and it's, you know, usually originally published in French and then translated into English. Um, so he's kind of a bi, you know, binational uh, figure, but you know who who has somewhat different um, re- receptions and reputations in France and America. So he uh, starts his career again writing about literature and particularly uh, fiction, writing about the novel. And you know what he uh, he's first known for is theorizing, you know what he first calls triangular and then mimetic desire, which is the idea that. Uh, that human desire is fundamentally imitative. In other words, that we, you know, once we get beyond fulfilling basic needs or sort of instinctual, uh, you know, wants, uh, you know, such as food, let's say, um, you know, we're uh, confronted with this immense, you know, array of potential objects of desire, right? Um, and so the way that we sort of navigate this is by uh, imitating others. So we look to others to model our desires, right? And and on one level, this is you the, know, that's what the Kardashians, right, or or any influencer, right? We look to them to tell us what to want. Yes, exactly. So it's it's the you know it basically lies behind the sort of influencer mar- model of marketing. It lies behind much of the psychology of advertising, um, but. You know he so it's it's not it's not exactly a, a sort of unfamiliar idea, but um, he does you know provide a kind of concise formulation of it in a way that nobody really had previously, and he really discovers it in literature, looking at you know particularly the the modern novel right, which is often about these kind of uh, you know it, it it charts what happens in in European history where you know in in the medieval in the medieval time. Your, your role in society was relatively fixed, right? You essentially, um, you know, what the, the aspirations you could have were set by more or less who your parents were, where you were born, right? Um, whereas, you know, when we enter into the modern world um, with, you know, the sort of market economy um, and the possibility of social mobility, you know, traditional hierarchies, like the sort of, uh, you know, distinctions of, of rank and degree, you know, between aristocracy and peasantry are sort of, eroded in favor of a kind of, um, you know, possibility of defining your own role in society. This means that, you know, people have to confront, okay, what, what do I, uh, what do I aspire to? What do I want? And so this means in some sense, you know, everyone in the modern world is a kind of, um, is, is homeless in some sense, right? Has no clearly fixed role. And so has to navigate that. 
And so Girard's insight is to, uh, you know, to look to how uh, social imitation shapes people's, um, people's desires and, uh, you know, navigation of their, their position in the world. And, you know, then the second major thing he realizes is that, um, you know, this can become very conflictual, right? So, you know, we can think of a sort of more traditional model of like a, a sort of master and an apprentice, right? Where the master, you know, embodies and practices some skill and the apprentice learns it. But because they're in relatively fixed roles, um, there can't really be a competition between them. Um, that the, the situation is structured, that there there isn't a competition between them. Um you know, when you enter into this more egalitarian and socially mobile society, people are more likely to, to want and aspire to the same things. And so they're, they're more likely to uh, come into conflict with each other uh, and be kind of overcome by envy, resentment. Um, and, and that, you know, this is, so this is for Girard sort of the defining condition of the modern world, right? That we're all looking on both sides at other people, comparing ourselves to them, trying to find models, but then these models almost instantly can become rivals, can become enemies, people we envy, people we resent. And so, you know, I think this, uh, this is kind of the, the, the model of the, or the, the, the sort of image of the modern world that he paints, you know, through his studies of literature. And then, so that's, that's kind of phase one. Phase two is that he, he sort of takes these insights a step further uh, in, his, in his later career, by showing that, you know, because of this, this fundamentally imitative uh, dimension of human social life, uh, there's always this potential towards conflict, right, where uh, people want the same things, uh, you know, precisely because the things they want are determined by imitation, they converge on the same objects, and therefore they come into conflict with each other over those objects, right? Um, and, you know, we, we can... Um, you know, mythology is full of examples, and this is why you know he kind of goes back to uh, fundamental uh, sort of texts of human uh, culture. You know, the Bible, mythology, and he finds again and again this kind of pattern, right, where there are these conflicts that emerge from people uh, wanting the same things, right, and and that and this is why the sort of mythic archetype of like conflict between brother and brother, right. Uh, you know, whether it's Jacob and Esau, you know, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, um, and, and many other examples in world mythology, right? If you, if you, uh, the, the Hindu uh, Mahabharata, you know, is, is about strife between brothers, you know, Romulus and Remus, it's, it's a fundamental aspect of, of all of these stories. And so this, uh, this problem is, is pervasive in, in human societies. And so then the question is, you know, how, how they how how this problem is resolved, and this is where he um, he come or he he kind of rediscovers this notion of of the scapegoat, which is essentially the idea, which I I don't think is that unfamiliar to us. Again, that you know a, a group in conflict may find some temporary truce or resolution by essentially agreeing on one person to pin all the problems on. And, you know, expelling that person from the group, uh, you know, in a more violent context, killing that person. Um, and so that, you know, the, these groups that are riven by these kind of uh, conflicts, you know, that, that the, the, the sort of spontaneous solution they find is to, uh, you know, identify some figure who can be, um, you know, who can be blamed for the, the conflict, the strife, and that person through being kind of pushed out of the group violently can can bring about some kind of uh, temporary resolution, right? But then the cycle will repeat itself over and over again, right? And so that's that's essentially the the model he discovers, um, you know, repeating itself in again in mythology and uh, in various kinds of uh, in various kinds of documents, you know, anthropo anthropological, you know, sort of ethnology ethnographies of of you know peoples all around the world. And so, you know, his his if his first major insight is this notion of mimetic desire or triangular desire, you know, which generates social conflict. His second is this idea that, you know, the fundamental means by which societies kind of resolve, you know, temporarily resolve their conflicts is by um, is through the scapegoat, is through the figure, the sort of uh, 
you know, this, this third party who's kind of cast out in order to bring about a resolution between the initial two. Is, um, and, is and there that, an antidote to that? Version. What's that? Is there an, is there an antidote to that? Like if, if we start with this premise that like, we always look for this scapegoat or something and because, uh, or, or rather take it a step back that we, we like mimetically crave what our neighbor has is the antidote to that. What some very religious communities do where they just shelter themselves from stuff, right? If you don't see the stuff, you don't know it exists and then you don't crave it or want it. And so maybe some sort of like, I don't know if asceticism is the right word for it, but just, you know, hey, if, if, if religious Jewish communities, people don't use smartphones, right? They have a what they call a kosher phone, which doesn't have internet access. So yeah, you can make a phone call or a text message, but that's it. And then you're not bombarded with corrupting stuff. And if you don't stare at beauty magazines all day long, maybe you're not going to want fashion stuff. Or I, I don't know. Like, is that the antidote? Because it's it seems like an obvious one, and I'm not even sure that's a a good thing. But I know that there are lots of people who would tell you that consumerism is bad, and we have to somehow like avoid consumerism. Right. So, I mean, it's a good, it's a great question, uh, and obviously, you know, you can think about religions as being, um, you know, various attempts to kind of solve this problem of kind of unconstrained desire, right? That. Uh, you know, if you think about Buddhism, it basically defines desire as suffering, right? And therefore, you know, kind of prescribes various ways that you can kind of relieve the suffering. Although Buddhism doesn't, uh, you know, it, it defines itself against asceticism, right? It doesn't say you should just renounce the world and go, you know, live in the woods, uh, as many people were at the time when, you know, Buddhism first emerged. Um, instead, it, it kind of charts a, a, a more kind of moderate path. You know, I think you bring up, you know, you bring up, you know, more um, devout Jewish communities. Obviously, you know, one thing that's it's not, it's not only just Jews, right? Like there are I lots mean, of religious communities yeah, that, that do this. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, it's it's notable that, um, you know, I live quite near one of the big sort of uh, Haredi areas of Brooklyn. You know, another thing that's notable is like people basically kind of wear the same clothes. Now, interestingly, you know, that's also something that comes up in, in schools, right? Where you have schools where they School impose uniforms. uniforms. And totally. the reason for this is that, you know, people might envy each other for having more fashionable clothes. Right. It, it will create these social conflicts, you know, because some people have more fashionable clothes than others. Uh, you know, kids who are richer will be able to show off their wealth through their clothes and it'll create this conflict through envy. So, you know, you can see all of these kind of social technologies, which are used to kind of try to, to prevent these, these types of conflicts from coming about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing that would be important here is that asceticism isn't a solution necessarily in this context, because, you know, this, this type of conflict doesn't just pertain to, and in fact, it, I would say it only... It, it, it more fundamentally pertains to desires that are not um, that are not satisfiable through consumption. In fact, you know, perhaps the most uh, the most uh, potent example in in Girard's work on the novel is the the sort of love triangle, you know, of between sort of romantic rivals, right? So, in other words, in this case, it's not an object where, or it's it's not an object of of consumption. It's you know where. Um, you know, you buy a car, I see your car, I envy it for a while. I'm frustrated because I can't afford it, but then I get a raise and then I buy the same car as you. So I guess our conflict kind of resolves itself there, you know, but if, if we are both in love with the same woman, then, you know, that's right. The, the woman is it. more scarce than the car in a way. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. And so the scarcity, I mean, so the, the question of scarcity is important here, right? Because, um, you know, he's, he's talking about, uh, on one hand, you know, there are important objects of desire, like let's say a, a romantic, you know, an object of romantic interest that are intrinsically scarce, right? But then, I mean, the other interesting thing is that objects of desire can sort of come to be perceived as scarce even when they're not, right? And, you know, an example of this maybe from like teenage life would be that, you know, if if I have a whatever, this is just like a silly example, but let's say I have like a cool leather jacket, right. And I like 
define myself as the cool kid in the school, but then like too many other kids imitate me and start wearing the leather jacket as well. Right. Like on some level, there's no, there's no problem in terms of the scarcity of the leather jacket, but it's, it's function as an object of desire is kind of determined by, by being uh, scarce, by being scarce. And so as soon as other people wear it, like that can start creating conflict. Right. I guess there's, there's this, we used to talk about like someone is the alpha in a group and someone's like the beta in the group and the follower or something. And I think there's this, uh, term of the Sigma. I don't know if you're familiar with that of like the person who is like above it all, who's not, not the alpha or the beta. They're like rising above it. They march to their own beat. And, and I guess maybe that's like the, the counterpoint is like the Sigma is the, the one who is not, creating desire through imitation for them they're the one who discovers something in the first place or something along those lines like they they want they put on the leather jacket because they like the leather jacket not because someone else has it and then everyone else wants to imitate that person or or something along those lines right yeah no that's interesting i mean it's, it's worth noting here since you bring up alpha um, you know, alpha males and so on, you know, this sort of comes out and, and Gerard, he does look into the, the science of ethology, right. Uh, you know, kind of dealing with primates and primate behavior. And, you know, this is relevance in a, in a very specific way, which is that if you look at how primate hierarchies are worked out, and this is true of hierarchies and, you know, in various kind of animal groups, um, you know, what, what happens? Well, you have some kind of showdown between dominant males. And then at some point, one of them just surrenders, right? And this is kind of interesting. So, I mean, I, this is super random, but like when I was in, in South America, I once saw they, they have a particular kind of bullfight um, where two bulls face off, right? It's not like the Spanish bullfight. It's like two. And, and you can see this happening right? when, when you see this, like two bulls will lock horns for a while, they'll fight. And then eventually one of them just runs off. Right. So this is this is how a dominance hierarchy functions, right? That that the hierarchy kind of resolves its the, the question of, you know, this rivalry between two claimants to the hierarchical status resolves itself because one of them just surrenders. And so a specific claim that Girard makes, which I think is interesting, is that you know, because humans are highly imitative, right, more so, and, and our imitate our imitativeness is kind of what elevates us above the you know, other primate species to whom we're most closely related um, because we're hyper imitative, which is the capacity that allows us to learn language, to learn culture, right? Things that are not programmed into us by instinct, but instead that we have to learn by looking and imitating others, right? But because we're hyper imitative in this way, it means that this, this situation of a dominance hierarchy doesn't come about, right? That, that even somebody who is, um, even somebody who is, you know, clearly going to be defeated may continue to fight, right? And, and may, in fact, um, you know, because the, the mimetic nature of the violence, right? In other words, the fact that the other person's violence towards me is going to generate a contrary imitative reaction in myself, which may mean that I simply keep fighting even no- and that I will actually die rather than surrender my status, right? And this, this is exactly the situation also that Hegel describes as in the, the master-slave dialectic. And another example of it that comes up in prior philosophy is Thomas Hobbes, right, who basically says, you know, the problem with human society is that, you know, this idea of the war of all against all, well, it wouldn't be, the war of all against all wouldn't be a problem if you had the resolution provided by a dominance hierarchy, because somebody would just surrender eventually. But the problem with the war of all against all is that because of the nature of human ingenuity, even somebody who's relatively weak can through a kind of cunning through the use of tools can kill somebody who's much stronger than them. Right. And so Jacob and Esau, right. I mean, Jacob outsmarted Esau, even though Esau was stronger, right? Yes. Right. It's, it's a perfect example, right. That, that Esau is clearly the the stronger party and yet he's, he's ultimately um, he's ultimately defeated and outwitted. um, Or, Or David and Goliath. And I mean, yeah, there's a lot of examples. I guess here's a question then is does does Rene Girard think that um that 
this type of desire is something that we want to transcend? Like, is that a, a good thing to rise above this desire? Or is it just like, that's, he's just understanding that that's just life. Everyone has that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in his, um, in his novels, I mean, sorry, in his studies of, of novels, what he finds is that uh, there, I mean, that there is a certain kind of transcendence, which is simply the transcendence of recognize. And I, I think something that's important here is that, you know, the, in this process, there's a kind of misrecognition of what's going on. So in other words, if I am obsessed with something because I'm imitating somebody else, then usually I've deluded myself into thinking that it's, you know, because of the intrinsic value of the thing, right? So in other words, um, I don't, I don't think that I want things because others want them. I think that I want them because they're Right. We don't want to admit that we're followers. We want to think that we were the very first ones to discover that Chanel bags are cool. Exactly. And so basically the idea is that, um, so the transcendence would, would partly just come in the form of recognizing, I mean, how this translates practically is unclear, but it would partly come in the form of, of being able to recognize who your models are. Right. Um, so, so simply being able to recognize that you have models that someone else is, setting the terms of your desire and that that is producing kind of unhealthy results. Right. And so, I mean, in, in his study of the novel, what he argues is that, you know, there's a process through which the novelist in order to kind of portray society in this way has, has, has been able to see through the kind of super superficial level of motivation and, and understand it more deeply. Right. And, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, one simple example I think is like <laughs> in my own that I'll I'll name from my own life, which is by no means a kind of uh, you know some kind of grandiose solution. But um, you know, I think <laughs> an interesting social media habit I think is to like if you have particular accounts that are you know of other people that are you know annoying you, vexing you, producing a kind of rage and, and, you know, that, that you hate follow or something like that. Like, I think, you know, being able to recognize the unhealthiness of that and, and sort of mute just or block you know, everybody. Just like yeah, stop, block liberally. It's great. Just like stop paying attention to those people. Right. Because on some level you're locked in this kind of mimetic rivalry with them, right? They're, they're kind of generating some sort of envy. They're generating some sort of resentment. And so it's better to simply ignore them because they're an unhealthy model. Right. Right. And then I think, you know, conversely, the other thing that would come from this recognition is try to identify like who or what is a positive model that you can follow. Right. Um, so it's not it's not sort of saying that you're not going to I mean, in the, the problem with imagining you're not going to follow anyone is that you're probably going to fall back. It's not realistic. Right. Or, so I think it's far better to kind of realistically assess who your models are and figure out which ones are the negative ones, which ones are the ones that are generating these feelings of resentment, envy, and so on, and just kind of, uh, you know, exclude them from your, your, uh, your sort of orienting system in the world, just, you know, block, mute, whatever, and try to orient yourself towards models that seem to, you know, have positive results, that seem to be generating positive results, you know, for your life. If, if you were to, if you were to trace how Rene Girard becomes a an influential thinker at this moment for folks who are both politically active, what you might call sort of a new right, how, like what's the the how, trace me through from one to to the next? Like, how do you get from Rene Girard to Peter Thiel? for example, or, or something. And, and then, well, let's start with that one. And then I have a, a follow-up on that. We'll get to after. Yeah. So, um, I think, you know, that's something I've been puzzling over and writing about for a while. You know, I think on one level, it's very contingent. It's just that Peter Thiel takes a class with Rene Girard at Stanford and is very influenced by him. Um, so it's, it's highly contingent in that sense. Um, you know, more, I mean, at that time, Teal is kind of a, as at Stanford, he's kind of a, you know, pretty much a kind of hard line, like Ayn Rand libertarian, I think. Um, and his, his political views kind of 
mature and and nuance after that. I mean, but, a- uh, anyone who reads Ayn Rand starts as an Ayn Rand libertarian, and then <laughs> one hopes matures after that. Um, it, yeah, it was Victor yeah. Hugo that brought me back from the brink, but I think it's a, a different story for everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of what's interesting is that, you know, Rand's sort of hardline kind of romantic individualism, right? That, that you know, it's it's kind of about, you know, being this uh, sui generis, like, you know, creative genius who, you know, kind of creates ex nihilo and so on. It's, you know, that's kind of the Randian ethos. And that's why it appeals to you know, By the way, her characters were like her heroes were sort of the sigmas who were not imitating; they were creating a totally de novo, right? As you just said, like that was that was that was her heroes. Yeah, and so I mean, you can see how for Teal, perhaps this was quite, and I think he says this, you know, that that it was it was quite, you know, discovering Girard, you know, is quite deeply at odds with with Rand, right? Because Girard doesn't really believe in, he doesn't really believe in sort of autonomous individuals, right? He thinks that everybody is ultimately an imitator. Um, it's just a matter of how they navigate their relationship to their models. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it became a kind of central internal conflict of his worldview, as I understand it, um, that, that he, this kind of tension between those two perspectives. Um, and you know, I think Girard just emphasizes society and social order above individual above the individual fundamentally. I mean, there are different ways of doing that. He doesn't do it in a kind of left wing, whatever communist way or anything. But he he does he does necess- he does uh, emphasize uh, that you know because humans are you know given to conflict, driven by these kind of imitative dynamics. Um, you know, there needs to be a kind of stabilizing social order uh, and. Um, you know, that, that individualism is dangerous in this, in this way, right. From his perspective. So, I mean, these are, these perspectives are quite at odds. I mean, it's not, yeah, it sounds um, contradictory to the sort of, if, if you, if you assume that Ayn Rand is the philosophical godparent of everyone in the quote new right, then, which I, I would guess even those who won't admit it, that's probably the case, right? Everybody read Atlas Shrugged in high school and then went off the deep end. And so is Rene Girard like an antidote to that or like a sort of stabilizing influence on that? Like how, is that the way to think about it? Yeah. I mean, so I would, I would say honestly, like I, I think he's, um, he's not necessary. He's not influential broadly in any, you know, it's certainly he, um, you know, be, basically because uh, he's somebody Teal has mentioned, you know, he's of interest and I've spoken to a lot of these people, you know, he's of interest to a lot of people in the tech world who are sort of not, uh, you know, who are not, you know, on board with the kind of liberal Silicon Valley consensus. Um, so, you know, just kind of people who are like politically and ideologically heterodox in the tech world, you know, because Teal is kind of a, a big figure in that realm, you know, they, they've become aware of and interested in Girard because of that. Um, so, you know, and then as far as this kind of new right, I mean, you know, in some sense, like, I think it's quite an incoherent grouping in the first place. It's mm-hmm. defined by, you know, various different things, including, you know, a kind of combativeness and like hostility to what they see as the kind of complacency of the, the sort of conservative establishment. Um, you know, it's defined by a kind of countercultural style of like provocation, um, you know, which in many ways makes it closer to certain parts of the left, right? Historically, where you know it's kind of defined by like seeing itself as as countercultural, right, and as as kind of subversive, um, you know, as kind of op- oppositional towards the dominant culture. And so, you know, I, I think the, the, the Girardian insight that is, uh, or, or the Girardian, let's say, uh, focus or interest that is, that is kind of pervasive in this realm is just the focus on kind of herd mentality, the focus on kind of, you know, think of like the NPC meme of like all the gray NPCs saying, I support the current thing. Like that's, you know, so, so this idea that, you know, you have to be attuned to, group think to, you know, people's imitativeness, people's tendency to kind of herd together, um, to fall in line, 
around these orthodoxies. And, you know, this is an important kind of... So it's, it's almost like an explanation for why certain causes become so popular for a moment because, you know, somebody influential is like, I support Ukraine. And then like, you know, like you said, all the, the, the gray blob NPCs are like, I support Ukraine. And then they just stop caring a minute later and then no longer nobody knows anything about Ukraine. I mean, it was it was Iraq 20 years ago. And Richard Richard Hanania, I don't know if you read his stuff, but Richard Hanania had a a comment that he made that really stuck with me a, a, a few weeks ago when he said, remember Christopher Hitchens interviewing people, these soldiers who were crying tears of joy that they were doing such an important thing to bring democracy to the people of Iraq. And so we spent $2 trillion on this over a, a like a you know 15-year period. And you would think that democracy in, in Iraq is very important to people in America if we're going to spend $2 trillion and all these soldiers and their lives on this. And, and, and then he said, but is Iraq a democracy right now? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've absolutely no idea if Iraq is a democracy right now. And I would guess you don't either. Don't Google it. But like, I, nobody knows. So, so this sort of current thing is, is that really about, you know, just sheepishly following whatever you're told to follow? Is that, is that mimetic, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. And, you know, part of what I think the weakness of this perspective can be that, you know, a lot of, you know, whether it's the new right or kind of the intellectual dark web or whatever, uh, whatever grouping, you know, kind of styles itself as sort of anti, um, anti-establishment anti or anti-consensus is that, you know, it, it can then generate its own kind of hard, herd mentality, which is just, you know, if, if they support the current thing, we oppose it. You know, so it, it it just becomes a kind of, and th this is mimetic as well, right? That totally define yourself, and th and this I right. think Mark Andreessen supports this, so I think it's good, or the inverse, like it, it could go either way. Yeah, and so yeah, I think it's it can you know, there's sort of a superficial reading of Girard, which is just about you know, kind of blaming the other side's uh, you know, hurt, you know, sort of. Uh, tendency to, you know, herd together and mindlessly recite slogans and so on, which, you know, is certainly a real thing. I think, you know, the, the 2020 moment of, you know, the kind of uh, George Floyd, I mean, I wrote my own, I wrote a piece about, you know, kind of reflecting back on that moment in part um, in light of Girard, you know, and certainly the kind of, uh, you know, what Emile Durkheim, the sociologist who's a major sort of influence on Girard called collective effervescence, like these moments of kind of where a group comes together in this kind of moment of, of, of mimetic sort of coalescence. Um, fervor, you know, maybe. The George yeah. Floyd moment was like a really crucial right. one. I think a lot of the people, a lot of people kind of on the right and some parts of the center who were kind of horrified by that, um, you know, I think saw, saw that Girard had something to say about it, but I think often they're not they're not able to see their own. I mean, not surprisingly, but they're not able to see that that you know that their own kind of grouping might be prone to the same sorts of sorts of uh, sorts of groupthink. So, you know, that's not surprising. Um, you know, that this again is is you know for Girard, everything you know, people are fundamentally always going to misrecognize the nature of what they're doing and what they're desiring. Like that, they're that pe people's you know, that, that, that there's just this fundamental misrecognition that it's very hard to transcend, right? Well, I guess if you, if you think about it from that perspective, then you might say that there's a sort of contempt, right? Like that you could define the new right as having contempt for those who blindly follow that herd mentality or the current thing or... Uh, but maybe that's, maybe that's too broad and, and, and sweeping of a description, but like that, that's sort of the unifying principles, right? It's, oh, you're, you're obsessed with masks for COVID because uh, you're told to worry about masks for COVID. And then like, I have contempt for you and therefore I'm like positioning myself in, in, in opposition to that. I, I don't know. Maybe that's, that's too broad of a, 
a definition though. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, the other thing that I've observed is that you can get the, you know, I think, you know, and this, I think points to the, you know, and, and one of Gerard's main points is that, you know, the most, uh, you know, when people become kind of locked in these enmities and rivalries, you know, they always perceive themselves as absolutely different from the, the, the person with whom they're locked in rivalries. But if you're able to look at it from the outside, what often, what you often find is that they become doubles of each other, right? They become, um, they become indistinguishable on some level. Right. And this, and, and I think this is, well, not, not like, it's like the idea that nothing's original. I think it was, um, Bloom who said that no one has an original idea anymore. Shakespeare wrote them all down and, and mm -hmm. or something along those lines. And so maybe right, it's that but, kind of thing, right? Yeah. But I mean, in this case, you know, what's, what's odd is that you have people, let's take the COVID example. You know, you have people in the <clears throat> sort of who are like, uh, you know, pointing out correctly the kind of credulousness towards certain sort of so-called experts, uh, you know, the way certain policies and so on were oversold, the, the weakness of the science behind them and so on. But then often these same people will like latch onto their own like really bizarre um, pseudo-expertise. And right. I mean, the most extreme version of this is you have people, you know, you have basically these people who believe in like the long COVID is this disaster that's going to like cripple the human race and like everyone's just going to die. There's going to be some mass die off. Like there are people who actually believe that. But then actually you actually you have people who would be totally scornful of that, but who essentially believe the same thing about the vaccines that like they're this ticking time bomb and everyone's just going to like drop dead from them at some point. So it's very weird how if you if you look at the extremes of the kind of COVID consensus and then the COVID skept consensus skeptical people, like they kind of end up in the same place, which is like, whatever the stuff that happened was in 2020 and 2021, 22, it's just going to like kill us all and bring about the apocalypse, <laughs> whether through the vaccines or through the virus itself, totally. one or the other, it's going to do the same thing. So it's, it's, so the point is just that, you know, these opposites uh, seem to end up. Or you can be sheep on either side of the spectrum, I guess, right? Is, is there a, if you were to take his ideas and then sort of extrapolate, is there a religious connection here where someone who is Jewish or Catholic or some other religion is more or less likely to find these ideas are like a good match for their personal values or philosophy or something along those lines? Well, yes. I mean, I think this is, this is both, you know, one of the most interesting and, and, you know, according to some a kind of limiting factor of Girard's ideas, you know, he is a Catholic. He has a sort of, you know, he's, he's secular in his early life, but has a sort of conversion experience. And he has a kind of odd relationship to, I suppose the relationship between his kind of intellectual project and his Catholicism is somewhat ambiguous. You know, he, um, because he, he sees religion as a source of insight as, as being able to, you know, or, and and in some ways is having sort of understood better the nature of humanity than um, than you know modern social theory, right? And so, in some sense, he bases his social theory on insights that he claims to derive from like the Bible, right? And so, you know, we brought up Jacob and Esau, we brought up Cain and Abel. I mean, the basic idea he draws is that you know, in the in the Hebrew Bible, there's sort of a a a, a, a a gradual kind of deconstruction of mythology where um, to make this very brief, you know, he, he argues that most mythology is, is about, um, you know, kind of sustaining and justifying the functioning of the scapegoat mechanism. So it's kind of about um, these uh, it's, it's about these victims who are, who are kind of transfigured, whose, whose victimization is, is justified as legitimate, right. As being, um, as being, you know, the necessary cost, or, or, or in fact, who, who are identified as the source of plague, as the source of disorder of crisis, right? So one key example is the Oedipus myth, right? Where, okay, Oedipus shows up, he's done these horrible things, uh, although unbeknownst to himself, right? Um, he he's done these horrible things. He's, you know, s killed his father, sleeps with his mother. As a result of violating these fundamental taboos, a plague descends upon Thebes, um, and only with Oedipus's expulsion can Thebes be cured of the plague, right? And so this is a classic example of how this kind of more traditional myth works. 
you know, he argues that that the the Jewish Bible scriptures, um, you know, in various ways kind of turn this on its head. They show that, you know, these figures who are kind of blamed for bringing about crises, conflicts, plagues, et cetera, are, are innocent, right? That, you know, the figure of, of Joseph in the, you know, in, in the book of Genesis is repeatedly kind of scapegoated. He's blamed for various things, um, but he's always kind of uh, redeemed, right? He's always, he's always kind of um, shown to be, to be, you know, not culpable. Right. In and Judaism so, and in Christianity, the scapegoat is then redeemed, right? Like uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and then becomes, you know, the, the grandee in Egypt. And, um, and ultimately, of course, Jesus, right, is, you know, the, the ultimate, hey, society blames him and then kills him. And it's all to illustrate that actually he's the redeemer and, and the good one. Right. And so that's, you know, and so once we get to the Gospels, um, you know, the Christian scriptures, you know, for Girard, this is kind of the 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 linchpin of, of you know, this kind of um, project of, of, you know, deconstructing the scapegoat mechanism, right? Where, um, you know, this figure who is sort of uh, sacrificed in a sense, um, you know, and, uh, but, but then is, is, is shown to be, you know, not, you know, is shown to be innocent, um, to be, uh, you know, not, not culpable is, um, you know, is then kind of identified with, with the divine, with, with God himself. And so this, you know, for Girard, what it does is it, and, you know, what this whole project does in his account is it sort of um, gradually deconstructs both mythology, but also the kind of social mechanisms of scapegoating that mythology just functions to justify. And so the result is that, um, the result is that, you know, th- that we, we still scapegoat but we have a very bad conscience about, and so and so this is like, part. You know, he says that, um, you know, Jesus says, you know, famously, like I came to bring not peace but the sword. The way he reads this is that, you know, th- that okay, you know, he, the function of the, the gospel is to to kind of disable and dismantle the basis of the scapegoat mechanism. But the problem with that is that the scapegoat mechanism is very ugly, but. Without it, we don't really have any other means of of uh, reconciling conflict, and so once we get rid of it, we are just left with the stark choice, right? Of do we um, do we own up to our own, you know, to to our own um, imitativeness and to our own violence, or do we, um, you know, simply let it proliferate? Now he does point to uh, something else, which is that. Um, you know, the, the, the development of a legal system, right. Of a judicial system, you know, is essentially an attempt to create a means of, of neutral conflict resolution, right. That you can, you can take two parties who are in conflict and, you know, that when you have a legitimate legal system, it can resolve that conflict without letting it spill out into kind of generalized social crisis, right? So if you compare like... Right, it doesn't have to turn into a lynch mob. Right, a vendetta or a blood feud or these kind of spiraling conflicts that have no terminal point to the resolution of a conflict through a trial, right? And in fact, you know, the the great example of this is in the, going back to mythology, the Oresteia, the story of Orestes, you know, who, um, you know, is is caught up in one of these kind of blood feuds, right? He kills his mother to avenge her murder of his father. And so, you know, and so on going back um, several stages beyond that. And then, you know, what the, the, what the myth and the, you know, the play tells us is that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's to resolve this problem, right. Which is that Orestes kills his mother. He's then chased by the furies, right. Essentially this kind of mythologized lynch mob. Right. And, you know, but this itself would not resolve the problem. It would just continue to, sort of metastasize, um, you know, through this kind of tit for tat violence. And so, you know, the resolution is for Athena to enter in as the kind of mediator and the embodiment of a, of a legal system who can say, 
okay, you know, Orestes needs to be punished, but he's not, you know, we can't just let him be kind of immolated by a lynch mob. Um, instead, there has to be a kind of fair and just punishment. And so this is a myth about essentially the origin of the the legal order as a, as a means of resolving conflict that takes us beyond, um, you know, these kind of dangerous spirals of tit-for-tat violence. So I think, you know, he does see the modern world as, as having, you know, come up with means of, of resolving conflict, you know, precisely because of the discrediting he argues of, of the scapegoat mechanism and the way that it becomes sort of morally questionable. Um, you know, we, we eventually arrive at these other means of resolving conflict, but these are also very fragile, right? And so, you know, interestingly, when you have people turn against the legal system and say whatever that, you know, in fact, the killing of George Floyd is just an organized lynching or something like that. Um, you know, this uh, this means that this uh, the system, you know, may not be able to maintain its its kind of uh, aura of neutrality, which could you know severely challenge its ability to to maintain any order. So, if you think about um, major world religions now is, um, you know, obviously it seems Judaism and Christianity with their focus on these redemption stories rather than on the lynch mob being right in, in Judaism and Christianity, the lynch mob is usually wrong, right? Like Joseph or Jesus or these other stories we talked about. Um, does that somehow then translate to and and maybe I'm reaching here. Does that somehow translate to like Judaism and Christianity are are somehow more uh, forgiving ethoses? And is there and and thus somehow more compatible with uh, in a state that uh, holds power and decides to mete out justice rather than the lynch mob meeting out justice? Like, are Judaism and Christianity somehow more compatible? with like the state as the monopoly on power or am I totally reaching here by, by thinking about it that way? No, I, I mean, I think that is, I, th- I think that is probably how you would frame it. Um, so, and, and that I think, you know, he's, he's a thinker who sees, you know, even the kind of emergence of like a secular world order as being rooted in the, the particular kind of Jewish and Christian evolution away from, you know, what he calls the sacred, which is, you know, kind of religion founded in scapegoating violence. Um, so yes, I mean, I think, I think that's basically correct. And so that, you know, that is sort of a, you know, I, I think he can be accused of being a sort of Western supremacist or something like that. Um, but, you know, that's, <laughs> I mean, in a sense, he's really just offering a description, right? Why is it that why is it that the whole world has kind of, you know, gravitated towards the Western model in some sense? Well, I think in part because it it represents a sort of, you know, whether, I mean, he, he doesn't think that it's all positive, right? But it does represent, he argues, a kind of advance over the sort of models of, of power and authority that came before it. Um, that is That is at least sort of necessary to the progression of history even though it may actually, as he argued in his last book, you know, bring about apocalypse. Um, so he, he wasn't necessarily, he wasn't uh, sort of triumphalist about this necessarily, but, um, you know, in a way quite pessimistic, but he did see it as uh, a sort of, you know, that, that the particular logic that's worked out in the Bible, you know, ultimately kind of lays the foundations of the, the world we live in now and has kind of that logic has spread around the world, whether we like it or not. And that doesn't necessarily solve our problems, but it does, you know, place us in a new kind of relationship to to society. I think for our next podcast, we're going to have to do Ayn Rand and how mm-hmm. one intellectually recovers from Ayn Rand. Did you ever meet, final, final question, I know you're going to need to run. Did you ever meet Rene Giraud? I did not, no. Mm. Um, yeah, he passed away in 2015. So uh, I was I was really just kind of beginning to write about him at that point. Um, but no, I, I have not. 
are and you teach classes about him or you have taught classes yeah, about, I have you have. About, yeah. mm-hmm. were they were they like heavily subscribed is it like a thing where he's now becoming very trendy or something and so so you think if you started teaching that class again suddenly they're going to be banging down the doors to take your class yeah, I mean, it's interesting, uh, you know, you we haven't gotten to talk about it, actually, but um, this Scott Alexander, you know, right. Slate we, we plan to talk about that article. We haven't gotten to it. But, um, but he, you know, I mean, I'd say he him writing about it is definitely an example of how he's kind of, you know, become of interest. You know, at the same time, you know, from a very different realm, there was a piece on him in Harper's Magazine uh, last month or so. And so he does seem to be of you know, growing interest to more people. I was also just in a conference in DC that was, you know, quite a meeting of the minds, uh, you know, quite a few people of different, you know, very different backgrounds uh, were there and some very prominent people that was organized by Luke Burgess, uh, who teaches at Catholic University as an entrepreneur, um, but also has written a very good book, which I recommend to your listeners called Wanting. That's, you know, quite a good sort of intro to, uh, to Gerard, kind of coming out of the, you know, more, I mean, he's coming, as opposed to me, he's coming at it more out of the academic realm. He's coming at it more from the from the business world. Um, so, you know, it's it's quite, uh, it's, it's a very good and, and lucid intro. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there is a growing interest. I've taught a few classes online. Um, people can check out, if they look for, I, I, I don't have an immediate, link but if they look for some videos on youtube i did with justin murphy they're kind of um related to a class i taught that was for the general public um i will i will run that class again at some point anybody can take it if they're interested sign up we we can we can find the links hopefully and and put them in the show notes uh, or something yeah i did these videos with justin murphy they're they're just kind of teasers for for the contents of the, uh, the the course on gerard that i've taught in the past and and will do again sometime over the next year so, and that's, Terrific. I've done it a little bit in the academic context, but those are just courses for anybody who signs up. So I think there's, that was going to be my next question is like, how does one get an introduction to his ideas besides just listening to this podcast? And it sounds like that's probably yeah. a good way to do it. Sure. I mean, I would, you know, people can also just to plug my own stuff a little more, please, you know, I, I wrote a piece last year called Rene Girard and the rise of victim power that, um, is, is a good you know, in my opinion, primer on, and, you know, his thought and kind of how I, how I look at it and apply it to the contemporary world. So I just, I just shared it with you so you can. Uh, Terrific. With your listeners. Excellent. Well, um, cool. Jeff, as always, great to have you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for the chat and uh, look forward to um, digging more into Rene Girard and to our next episode together. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Cool. Thanks so much.